The legal views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute or contain legal advice. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. We are on episode 95 of the show. My goodness gracious, G. Willikers, we are just fighting our way, marching undeterred to episode 100 of this podcast. I never thought we'd make it this far. This is crazy. A hundred shows together, creating this community with you and me and all of us, and it's so cool. And I know we've talked about this on other shows, but we got to do something cool for episode 100. I don't know what we're going to do yet. I haven't the foggiest idea, and I'm hoping maybe you guys got some ideas because uh, I got nothing. But I know it's got to be something big because episode 100 doesn't come along all that often. And if you got any ideas, let me know because I want it to mean something because it's not just an achievement for me. It really isn't. It's an achievement for this whole community. We've built something together with your dedication to this show, with your dedication to your careers, to the questions you ask, to the interactions we've had. This is all of us, man. And so I want this to, I want episode 100 to be something cool, you know, get into that century mark, but I don't know what we're going to do. So let me know. Give me some ideas. Um, either way, I'm excited for this week. I'm sitting here. I'm in a good mood. Got my Diet Coke with me. I'm taking sips to keep myself energized and full of caffeine. And let me just say this about Diet Coke, just as a quick aside. I have but few vices in my life. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do any of those kind of bad habits. But dang it, if I can't kick Diet Coke, I am just so addicted to that stuff. And I hope there's really no long-term ramifications for it. Um, if you are aware of any health problems for drinking Diet Coke, don't let me know. Don't email me. I'd rather be in blissful ignorance about that. Um, but either way, I'm excited for this week. Episode 95 is going to be a great one. Uh, I'm going to tell you all about it, but first, uh, just a quick bit of housekeeping. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the Break the Business podcast by, uh, reaching out to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. That's where you can find this fantastic little program send us a good rating while you're there five star rating a nice review subscribe to us so that that episode gets right into your uh, itunes or whatever you do to listen to podcasts right on sunday when it pops up we very much hope that you can do that and if you want to make the show as good as it can be we need that two-way communication man reach out to us email us break the business at gmail.com if you have any questions that you want us to answer on the show to help you move your music career forward. That's what we are here for, man. Send us an email, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. If you have any uh, topics you want us to discuss or any probably warranted show criticism, that's where you go, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan, K-A-I-R. I'd love to hear from you. If you uh, reach out to me on Twitter, I always reach out back. I love to... Uh, communicate with the people who listen to this show. Uh, you can also like us at facebook.com slash break the business. My audio book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, is now available. Uh, it is the exact same text as the Break the Business book, which is already available in paperback and an ebook. And now it's available on audiobook. You can get it all at amazon.com. If you like hearing this voice, or if you can at least tolerate this voice, then you might like this audiobook because I narrate all 15 chapters of the book. Honestly, it's a nice thing to listen to in your car. I mean, this podcast, it's only on once a week, which means 
It comes up Sunday. You probably listen to it Monday. What are you going to listen to for the rest of the week? How about the Break the Business audiobook now available on Amazon.com? You just search Break the Business on Amazon. It pops right up. Our guest this week, so excited to speak with Tommy Darker. Tommy Darker is a musician, he's an author, he's a teacher, and this guy's got some teaching credentials, man. He's lectured at the Berklee College of Music. I've been told that's a pretty good music school. And his latest project is the Musicpreneur Hub. Now, I've been looking at this hub, Musicpreneur Hub, this cool platform. I've been exploring it over the past week. It's a pretty cool platform. This guy's got a good thing going here. I am a fan of this platform. Let me explain to you what Musicpreneur Hub's all about. Because maybe I can get you excited about it, too, and uh, get us all excited when we talk to Tommy Darker in the next segment. It's sort of like Quora. You guys know what Quora is? Quora is this website where basically you get your questions answered. You can answer, you can ask a question on any topic under the sun on Quora, and you'll get other users on Quora to answer it. Kind of a cool place. I, I often go on that site a lot. I learn a lot of things, and it's just fun to hear the community answer people's questions. It's a neat website. And Musicpreneur Hub is a lot like Quora, but it has two critical differences that I think are valuable differences for you, the indie artist, or you, the content creator. And here are those two differences. One, unlike Quora, all the questions on Musicpreneur Hub only relate to music and music entrepreneurship. So all the questions are catered to you, the musician, and how to become a better musician, how to become a better creator, and how to move your career forward on the business side. That's all, those are all the questions. And so it's a lot more focused to what your needs are as an indie musician. And so that's the first difference. And the second difference, and I think this is particularly valuable as well, is all the people answering the questions are music industry experts, so that you know that the answers you're getting, they're going to be good quality. So Musicpreneur Hub is like Quora, except the answers are better quality, the answers are about the music industry, and even the questions can be better too, because the people asking the questions are dedicated musicians just like you. So the questions and the answers are both going to be good quality, relevant to what you're doing as an indie artist, and uh, ultimately enriching, even if you don't have a particular question on Musicpreneur Hub. You can just go on that page and read other people's questions and learn a lot from experts. And look, don't don't get me wrong, I love Quora. I I go on Quora a lot. But sometimes there's a lot of crap questions and answers on Quora because it's a lot more open source. You're not hearing from the experts as much. And sometimes people are just trying to make like political statements on Quora and describe them as questions. I've seen questions on Quora where it's like, why are liberals so stupid? Well, that's kind of loaded. And so... This is a lot more organized. You're getting better quality on this place. So Musicpreneur Hub, really, really cool. I'm excited for what's going to happen with this platform. And more importantly, I'm excited to talk to Tommy about this platform and learn more about it so that we can all learn more about it. And I've been looking at the page a lot over the last few days just to kind of get a feel for it in preparation of my interview with Tommy Darker in the next segment. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of terrific questions on there. And selfishly, as somebody who makes a podcast uh, for indie artists and tries to come up with good topics, I kind of feel like I can come up with a bunch of good topics just by reading what other people are asking about on Musicpreneur Hub. I'm going to get a lot of good content ideas just by reading what other people are writing about on this page. So it makes my life a lot easier. So as a podcaster and a music industry podcaster, I am so thankful that Musicpreneur Hub exists to make my 
prep work a little bit easier for this podcast. And there was actually one question in particular on the page that I liked, and I, I want to I wanna answer it on the show. I want to just bring it up on the show and answer it on the show because I think it's a cool topic for all of you, something that's relevant to what all of you are trying to do as indie artists. And the question came from a guy named Tony in Austin, Texas, and he wrote, if I make music for a TV commercial, who owns the track? That's a great question. That is a fantastic question, and as a lawyer, I feel some level of qualification to give a decent answer on it, but like any question that's answered by a lawyer, the answer is going to be, well, it depends, because it does depend. If you make music for a TV commercial, who owns the track can depend on the situation, because there are multiple contexts in which an artist could make music for a TV commercial, and depending on what that context is, it will dictate whether the artist owns the track or whether whoever the advertising company is or whatever company is paying for the commercial owns the track. But to get a better idea of where we can start with this question, we should begin with just the default rule under American law. And the default rule is when any work of authorship is created, such as an original song or a sound recording based on an original song, whenever something like that is created, the default rule is that the person who created the work owns the work. Author equals owner. But when I, I say it's a default rule, because that default can change. It can change based on the context of the particular transaction between the artist and the company making the TV commercial. So let's look at a couple different contexts, and you can see what I mean here. Let's look at a simple situation. One where, let's say we got a company... And they want background music for their commercial. So not music that's already been created, but just sort of, we have this commercial of a car, and, or a car commercial, and the car is driving through, and we want some cool, dramatic kind of car traveling music. Dun, 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 The car is driving down the road and, you know, doing the cool uh, spinning and doing donuts and, like, taking sharp turns by drifting and skidding and they always have to say the little disclaimer on the bottom uh, professional driver close course do not attempt oh really i shouldn't attempt to do power sliding and drifting on my neighborhood streets but whatever the point is there's usually music playing in the background for that and that is an example of an artist making music for a tv commercial so who owns the music in that situation is it the person who created the music the default rule or is it the person who owns the tv commercial and in most cases the answer is going to be that the company owns the music in that situation, not the artist. And the reason why is because despite the default rule that author equals owner, the company will usually have the people making the music sign an agreement that says that the track that you're making for our commercial is what is known as a work for hire. What does a work for hire mean? A work for hire means that the person who made the work is not the owner of the work. The owner of the work is the person or organization that hired the artist to create the work. The artist is effectively creating the work for someone else. The artist is being paid. You're getting paid to make this work. But the copyright remains with the person who paid you, the company making the commercial. And that's an example of the default rule being altered by the transaction. So you have this default rule, author equals owner. But then there was a contract that said, no, 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 just kidding. You're the author, but you're not the owner. We're the owner. So that's one situation. Now let's look at another situation. One that ultimately can be more lucrative for the artist. Now let's say you, the artist, 
have already written and recorded a song. This is perhaps a song that maybe you've already put on an album, you're already selling on iTunes, you're making available for streaming on Spotify, you got it on SoundCloud, you got it on YouTube, you're building a following around it. This song is already out there, you made it, and it's kicking ass. And now a company's making a commercial, and they hear your song, and they say, oh my goodness, I love this song. This song would be perfect in the background of our commercial. This, this song would be amazing. And so they reach out to you and they say, hey, let's make a deal. We want to put your music in our commercial because we think your awesome song is going to help them sell our product. And in this situation, you still own the track. It's not their track. It's your track. You've already been using this track. You've already been selling it. You already have it on Spotify and all this, you know, and uh, YouTube and SoundCloud. And you're already doing stuff with this track. You play this song at your concerts and you're doing all this stuff with it. And so... It's your track, and instead of the company making the commercial owning the track, what's going to happen instead is that you are going to license to the company that's making the commercial the right to use your track in their commercial. And this is where we get into the magical, delightful world of syncs. Syncs, or what are known as synchronization licenses, are an amazing way for artists like you to get a nice payday. In fact, there are artists out there just like you who are making a pretty terrific living by licensing their music to TV commercials, TV shows, movies, even video games sometimes. They're, you're licensing to these different media companies the right to synchronize your music with the particular video medium, whether it's a TV commercial or a TV show or something like that. And in fact, there are even companies out there like Jingle Punks who work with artists to help find sync licensing opportunities. They help you find opportunities to get your music into TV shows and things like that. And when I say lucrative, I mean this is lucrative. You know, you can you can make a lot of money from this. A lot of artists do. And one of the reasons why you can make a lot of money from this is because in the TV commercial context and in other media contexts as well, when you license your track to a TV commercial, there are up to three different ways that you get paid. Three different paydays, man. So first, so payday number one, and I should say that you can get all three of these paydays if you both wrote the song and you recorded that song and you own the copyright to both the original song and the sound recording. So assuming this is true, you get paid three different ways. First, the TV commercial the company that's making this commercial, they're going to have to pay you what's called a sync fee for the license to use your song in their commercial, to synchronize your song with the video of their commercial. That's one payment. Second payment, even though they've already paid to use your song, they still got to pay to use the recording of your song. And that's a second payment known as a master use fee. So that's two different payments. So you're already sitting pretty. But now there is a third way you get paid because... You also get performance fees from your PRO, whether you're registered in ASCAP or BMI or CSAC, you get performance fees every time that commercial with your original song is played on television. Ka-ching, man. You can see why artists can you know, actively seek these opportunities and can get a lot of success from them. Now, it should be said, there are exceptions to this general rule, and individual transactions can be structured differently between you and the company that's making the TV commercial. For example, maybe the TV commercial wants to do a deal with you where they don't have to pay you a master use fee or the sync fee. 
They're saying, look, you're going to make money off of the performance royalties. We don't want to pay you a lot for the sync, but we think you're going to get exposure from it. And maybe you'll take a lower fee or no fee at all. You can negotiate it different ways. But generally, if I'm doing one of these deals, I want to make sure that my client gets every single fee that they're entitled to. I'm going to want them. I'm going to want them to get their sync fee. I'm going to want them to get their master use fee because those are rights and you should get compensated for your rights if you're going to license them away. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, that sounds pretty good to me. I want to be able to keep my rights to my music, but license that music to TV commercials to get my sync fee and my master use fee and my performance royalties. That all sounds terrific. So how do I do it, Ryan? Well, there are a few things that you can do. Firstly, if you are a big fan of this podcast and you want to look to other podcast episodes for some guidance on how to get these opportunities, I would recommend you go all the way back to episode two. Back in 2015 of this podcast, we interviewed one of my favorite musicians in the whole wide world, a delightful human being by the name of Mary Jennings, who has gotten a ton of her music placed in uh, television shows and movies and things like that. She's really good at getting placements because she writes great music for television. Like it just fits well with a lot of different TV shows. And we asked her about how she gets her music placed and she had some great tips there. So check that out. Episode two with Mary Jennings. You want to reach out to companies like Jingle Punks. Companies that know how to reach out to music supervisors and can help you find these opportunities for your music. But don't just feel like you can get set up with Jingle Punks and then you just can sit on your butt and Jingle Punks will make you rich. No, 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 no. You still got to run your own career effectively. Ultimately, the best way to get sync opportunities for your music is to make yourself successful. Make your songs successful. Network. Get out there. Make a name for yourself so that these people can find you, can know who you are, and can help you find these opportunities. You got to do that. There is no substitute for pounding the pavement and moving your career forward and having these opportunities find you just as much as you go out and find these opportunities. But perhaps the most important piece of advice to getting paid from these sync placements is to make sure you're set up to get paid for these sync placements. That means setting yourself up with a publishing administrator like SongTrust to make sure that you're getting all the payments that would come in for getting your music in a TV commercial or a TV show or something like that. Making sure you get your performance royalties, making sure you get all your sync fees and getting all the payments that you're entitled to you might be missing out on payments if you don't have a publishing administrator representing your publishing. And so that's a, if you're, if you're going to get paid, you got to make sure you got everything set up so that you do get paid. All right. So if that question came to me on Musicpreneur Hub, it was a great question. That's probably how I would answer it. All right, folks. And speaking of Musicpreneur, we got uh, Tommy Darker coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Keep listening to the Break the Business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time, my new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry. Thanks very much for your support. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the Break the Business Podcast. He is a musician, author, educator, and the founder of the Musicpreneur Hub, a music knowledge platform that connects music industry experts with creators and students. You can find out more about his work at www.tommydarker.com and musicpreneurhub.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Tommy Darker is on the Break the Business Podcast. Hi, Tommy. Great to have you on the show. Hello, Ryan. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to having an interesting discussion. Oh, me too. Um, and there's so many things that we can talk about with you. You are an experienced music professional, a smart businessman, and most importantly, a true f- friend of the indie artist. And I want to start right off with a serious music question. I don't want to waste any time with you with uh, non-music questions. Now, it says here you were a military policeman in NATO. Now, I have an average build and no fighting experience. If you had to kill me, how fast could you do it? Oh, my God. First of all, we'll talk with you. So we'll try to find a good reason to kill you. But probably I wouldn't be able to. So, yeah. Really? <laughs> oh, man. Like, like, like because you would have a, a – like you wouldn't be able to physically or just your ethics would just so prevent you from doing it? Man, you, you're writing so amazing stuff and your podcasts are so helpful that I wouldn't really stop your audience for having more of that. So, yeah, I'd spare you. I, I feel like this is the difference between like European military and American military. If I was asking, you know, I, I ask you know, a NATO guy that question, you say, I would never want to do that. You're such a good guy. We work well together. I guarantee you, I ask that question to a, you know, a Navy SEAL or something, they go, five seconds. <laughs> I would kill you Probably before you hit the ground. Well trained, so yeah, that's a give a diplomatic answer. <laughs> Very good. That. Well, I much appreciate your uh, your kindness there. I haven't been killing, you know, for five years. Um, I, I need to get back to that. Kill You're a little out work. of practice. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now to 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 the music point on this though. How does one go from the military to someone who dedicates their life to music and helping indie artists? Can you give the listeners some of your highlights? on your journey from where you were to where you are now? Because that's got to be interesting. Okay, let's go for that. So first of all, I'm turning 30 November 2017. So let's say I'm 30 right now. So going back from that, when I was 18, I graduated from high school. I joined a military school because I wanted to be independent financially. I wanted to have my own profession and not study. And also, we're a family of four. And we're not rich, we're well off, but we're not rich. So I wanted my parents to not pay for my studies and I wanted to get a guaranteed income from early on. So um, I studied this way and then 20 20 years old, I uh, graduated from the military school. And then I started working as a professional. 22, uh, I joined NATO in Belgium. So I'm, I'm originally from Greece. And then I moved to Belgium at the age of 22. I started... Working around my music, um, I had some time and I had money, definitely from the salary of NATO, to start recording my own music. I created my own label, we shot music videos, we took part in competitions, played live, all that while I was working 12-hour shifts <laughs> at NATO, the headquarters of NATO. And then at the age of 25, you know what, by that time, I had already realized that the thing that could stop me from quitting the army um, is, has not arrived yet. You know, for me, the the circle of being in the army was over. I could have done the same thing over and over, go back to Greece, apply again to go abroad, go to another place and keep having the same thing. I didn't really want to live a life that was predictable, that was stable and was the same thing over and over. 
So you know what? The easiest decision of my life, age of 25, I quit the army. I go there slightly unshaved in the, in the headquarters of Greek um, defense um, in Athens. And then I go there and I sign this contract that says that I'm released. I'm waiting for a few months. And then all of a sudden I'm a citizen. And then I moved to London. But that's another story. Wow. <laughs> that must have been such a crazy just shift for you, going from something as regimented and bureaucratic and planned out as the military to a career in independent music, which couldn't be less of those things. I mean, how did you sort of reconfigure yourself? Okay, that, that's a very interesting question because it's pretty simple as an answer. I've thought about it too many times. First of all, I had to make sure that I don't die. So financially, I was saving money. So if anybody really wants to quit, I wouldn't give them the, the, the mantra, hey, do what you love and go and quit your job right now. No, I was waiting for five years saving money to make sure that I can transition without being lost in a sea of other people that um, don't succeed. So I sold everything that I had. I sold my car. I sold my furniture. I had some money in the bank. And then I chose to go to the most expensive city of Europe, which is London. So first of all, <laughs> financially, I was ready. But second of all, psychologically, I was ready too because I, I, there was a deep inside of me that what I wanted to spend my life on is freedom, to do something that I really love, not to have a boss, and to make sure that what I do is totally up to me. Any success and any failure will be for me to enjoy and learn from and celebrate. So it was purely an easy decision that took, you know, 25 years to make. <laughs> And now today you are the uh, this code, this tag word that you've sort of developed now. You are a musicpreneur and, you know, a musician, entrepreneur. And you've written in the past that a critical component of being a musicpreneur is establishing what's known as a business funnel for your fans. That sounds, a, that sounds like a pretty cool term. What, is that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Okay, so essentially we're talking about business funnels, you can call them business models, you can call them business structure. I really prefer the word uh, business model, which is something that looks less invasive than business funnel or business structure. So a business model would be the structure of your business that describes how you create value for other people and how you capture value back, how you make money. And all the other components that would be a part of this is people you partner with, any assets that you have that would lead you in the long run to succeed, any daily activities, any expenses and, and profits that you have, and also the channels you're using to make things happen and how you communicate this value to the right audience. So these are some fundamental components from, for every business. But if we take a step back, I would say that the most basic triangle for every business is this simple thing, value, what you create a value, audience, who receives this value, and then at the end, at the bottom of the triangle, it's revenue, how you capture value, monetary value, for this value that you have provided to an audience. So in an essence, it's VAR. Mm. I feel like a lot of musicians probably have the most trouble, they certainly have a lot of trouble with that first part of the funnel, which is just getting the fans in there, but I imagine a lot of them also have challenge with the last piece, which is actually being able to turn some of those fans into revenue. Um, what is What would you say is probably the most common mistake you see musicians make when trying to uh, get 
fans to that last part of the funnel? Right. And that's a very interesting question, which I've had to learn from experience. What I was initially doing when I got started. um, So imagine me being at the age of 25 in London, not knowing anybody, having some money in the bank, never having been a freelancer before, not really having any clue how to make a career out of music and marketing. So essentially, I was free, truly free to do whatever I wanted, which is really scary. (laughs) So I had to learn and try by and, and learn by failing. I had to try so many things. Uh, and what I realized that I was doing wrong, and I can see it now, is that I was actually focusing in the beginning on the tools instead of focusing on the value. I was focusing on the channels that I use to give value to people and how to make money. So I was trying to find the tactics to make money instead of focusing on what's the most important part of the business, which is bring value. I didn't even know how to talk about what I was doing. It was all over the place. As a musician, I was making I was making music like Depeche Mode, Joy Division. So I'm in the UK. I'm in a place where there are so many bands that are known from the 80s onwards on this style of music. Then it probably is double than the other bands of the rest of the world combined. So I'm in the mecca of Depeche Mode type of music. And I'm here making music like Depeche Mode. So initially, I couldn't really stand out. And I could see now that's why I'm switching my career in terms of the style of music that I'm making. So the first mistake would be don't focus on the tools. Don't focus on all these platforms that promise you to make money. Try to find a clear way to talk about how you give value and then find who gets this value. And a very simple example is I'm I'm so amazed about this and you can get insights if you deconstruct what other people do. Just go and type one hour, dark, emotional piano music for study. Type something like this. And then you will see all these videos on YouTube with millions of views. Or type ASMR, um, something like this. You'll see people with millions of views on their videos. ASMR is still it's whispering, right? It's still music. Mm-hmm. It's making sure you use auditory means to produce something in people's head. ASMR helps people sleep. All this tickling and whispering makes people want to sleep because they have a hard time sleeping, right? So there is some function there. What about music? What about the one-hour emotional piano music that helps you study or, or write thoughts down? It helps you be in the mood to create something without distracting you. So having piano music that is mellow and slow probably helps you get in the zone of doing something without obtrusive music coming in and taking your thoughts away like pop music is. And these people compose one hour of music and put it there. Or they try to find similar songs or similar type of music and put it together as a playlist. And this brings value. So there is different types of value. There is functional value, like ASMR, helps people sleep. Or there is emotional value um, that makes people in the zone, people that are sad, they go to listen to sad music because they want to reinforce what they're feeling already. But in general, you need to find what type of value you provide to the audience. Having, for example, your music on Spotify, people say, oh, it's a must thing to do. But what kind of value does it provide to people? And I'll tell you what, the value of, of your music being on Spotify is that people can have access to it straight away. People want access to your music. And because almost everybody uses Spotify, then they will find it faster. If you don't have it there, you might hate the platform, you might not make a lot of money, but people will demand it because they want access to your music. So here is a need that you're solving by having your music on Spotify. There is, we can have a two, three hour long discussion 
without talking about value you can provide and what problems you're solving as a musician. But for now, let's start with these three things. You know, ASMR, you make people sleep. Emotional, one-hour emotional music, you help people concentrate in what they want to do. Spotify, you, you make your music easy to have access to. So this is the types of value. Don't focus on the tools that make money, but try to identify how you can make more value to what kind of audience. Well, there are folks who often credit this podcast for helping them sleep, but that's a different uh, issue altogether. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great that you, you spoke about YouTube and you know Spotify and these new platforms and how they're, it seems like they're replacing sort of the music platforms that we all grew up with. And you've written in the past that you don't see, for example, radio, TV, traditional media as significant components in a musicpreneur strategy anymore. Why would that be the case? And what other forms of media are replacing it? Is it you know YouTube and Spotify? What else could be out there? Right. And that's a terrific question because I don't really believe that the format of media is something that I can give advice that is evergreen. You know, <laughs> I can tell you that use Snapchat. It's a tool. I can tell you use YouTube, but again, if somebody listens to this in 2019, they will say, this dude Tommy Dark in that podcast, uh, no, I skipped that part <laughs> in the middle. They're going to be making because, you fun know, of we're us. focusing on their own thing. Again, TV and radio used to work terrifically well in the past because of copyright, because copyrights, you know, you, you are in law. You know that copyrights is, is an invention to make people money by uh, taking advantage of the intellectual property. Right. So royalty is something that we have invented to make sure there is business. But I'm pretty sure that having blockchain and having all this digital technology where they are decentralized and the payments are not done through a central authority, that will make it even more difficult for people to take advantage of copyright and other laws. You know, smart contracts, everything will be there in a digital wallet. All these things are changing the way we think. So I totally believe even now that TV, radio, and other traditional means will become outdated, or at least they will not work the same way that they used to work before. So again, as, as I'm saying, it's it just the tools. Don't really um, get mesmerized by them. It's not, it's not the ultimate solution. Mm. Try to see what works best today and use that tool to ride the wave. So again, yeah, it's great to be on TV, on radio, probably for the ego of people. Royalties are still great. But I'm not sure if that will happen in the future. So everybody should keep an eye and read news about what's what's happening next. Well, and a critical component in being able to find out what's happening next and to stay on top of the industry is to get yourself educated, to ask the right questions and find resources that can get you the right answers. And that's why I'm really excited about this project you're doing now, Musicpreneur Hub. Uh, can you talk a little, tell us a little bit about it? We talked about it a bit in the first segment we had on this show. But I want to hear more about what it is about from you. What can listeners expect when they check out this platform? Great. I'm really fascinated by how fast you can uh, have transitions from one topic to the other. You are really <laughs> great at doing this. We jump from one to the other seamlessly. So, yeah, kudos on you. <laughs> uh, so back to your, your question. Um, on Music Printer Hub, at the moment, talking right now in July 2017, you will find just a bar that looks like Google, where you click on it, it says ask a question, and then you're prompted to ask your question and submit your contact details. It's as simple as that. If you're listening to this in 2019 or later, I'm not sure if it's going to be the same. But at the moment, what we're offering on the platform is a safe place for everyone 
to go and ask any question they have in their mind that is music related. And then our job, we are a manual algorithm as a like kidding. You know, we take personally this question and then we try to find all over the world the best experts to reply to your question. And in the future, hopefully by the time you listen to this, this is happening. In the future, we want to make sure that within 72 hours, you get multiple replies by credible experts all over the world. And by credible experts, I mean people like you, people that are super knowledgeable, people that are in the music industry today, not people that sit on their royalties and used to know how things work, people that are (laughs) succeeding and failing right now. And also you will see a lot of artists that make a living, either part-time or full-time, and they had success, and they're sharing their knowledge with other musicians so they can benefit and create some legacy. Now, as somebody who developed this, I'm sure that you just spend hours on this site just reading the questions people are asking and getting pretty intrigued by them. Can you give us one of your favorite questions that you've seen a musician ask on the site and talk a little bit about how the expert answered it? Right. There is multiple experts that have answered this question. My favorite question is the most generic one that has been asked on the platform, which is, hey, I have five songs recorded. I live in 2017, and I want to release an album. What should I do? What are the next steps? Which is the most simple thing. This person said, hey, I have a product ready. What's happening next? It's 2017. What is the next thing to do? And I'll tell you why I was fascinated by this question. Because we're in, in 2017, every tool available, every piece of knowledge available is out there on the internet. And still, we don't, we're not sure what to do next, which is terrific. I call it <laughs> um, analysis paralysis. There are so many options that we've ended up living in, in chaos. We don't know how to put these things in order. There's so many things we can do. Well, and so, I'm, I'm glad you got so many answers on it because, I mean, there's so many ways you could answer that question. Exactly. Exactly. And on the platform, we want to make sure there is males and females, there's people from all over the world of any type of orientation answering questions. Because you know what? Depending on where you come from or which group you're classified as, classified as uh, where you are geographically, what type of music you make, every question have, can have a different answer. And this is our biggest challenge and bet on the platform. We want to make sure we have gender equality, we have cultural diversity, we have people from all over the world that can answer geographically and and experts on all different genres of music. So it's, it's very important that we take a piece of question as a conversation starter and then we keep going. So I cannot give you the exact answer, but I can say, I don't remember all the answers, but I can send you the link to this question and you can... Uh, include it somewhere so people can go and check out. Maybe there's going to be more answers in the near future as we keep bringing more experts on board. Oh, I'd love to share that with the listeners. If you can send that over today, uh, that'd be great. We'll put it in the uh, show description for the podcast. Nice. I will do that. Fantastic. Um, Again, folks, that is musicpreneurhub.com. I I really do see this as a platform that's going to uh, be so illuminating to indie artists, a, a, a place where creators can come together interact with experts and uh, move themselves forward. Really exciting idea. Uh, Tommy, um, we've done so many different topics with you and I I wish we had more time with you. So we're going to have to have you on again uh, down the road to just go deeper into all these different topics we're discussing. But in closing, uh, do you have any last tips that you want to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? 
Oh gosh, sure I do. I do have loads of tips. Uh, <laughs> let me let me think of one. Sure. Um, okay, just uh, falling onto the same category we talked about VAR, the the value to the audience and then the revenue. Let me give a very actionable tip on on the audience side. So yeah, it's it's people are asking how can I grow an audience? How do I know what these people want and what they value so eventually I can make money? And what my tip is is what I've been doing for the last five years. Spend time with them and talk with them one-on-one. -on -one. I will repeat, spend time with your audience one-on-one. -on -one. Go on a Skype call with them. Go see who has tweeted about you and reach out to them and tell them, hey, I would like to know what you think about this new song that I haven't released yet. You know what? Everybody wants to be appreciated. We are human beings. We like to be valued. We have some ego. You know, everybody has a little bit of ego in them. So your artist that is your favorite one is asking you to participate in the creative process or is asking for your opinion. Everybody's going to say yes. So what I would say, spend time with your audience. Spend time with the people that love what you do and talk with them. They will give you loads of ideas. They will be your marketing research. They will show you what to do next. They can even be your street team and promote what you're doing. Well, you're missing out on loads of things if you don't talk to them directly. Very cool. Tommy Darker, everybody. You can check him out at TommyDarker.com and MusicpreneurHub.com. Check that out as well. It has been a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Cheers, and you give me another reason why not to kill you. <laughs> we'll be right back on the Break the Business podcast. Friend of the show, John Ratzenberger here with Ryan Carella, author of Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, available on Amazon.com. Ryan, tell the folks a little about the book. Well, the book's about empowering Well, artists. that's fascinating, Ryan, but it's only a 15-second commercial. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody. Our thanks to Tommy Darker for joining us in the previous segment. Be sure to check out his website, TommyDarker.com, and his new platform that we've been talking all about this week, MusicpreneurHub.com, M-U-S-I-C-P-R-E-N-E-U-R-Hub.com. I'm excited for this platform. I really do think it has the potential to be a great resource for indie musicians or, as he puts them, musicpreneurs like you. And I really appreciated Tommy's insight about all the things he talked about. It was a it was a cool story that he shared. I think it's cool to be able to go from, I mean, the military, which could not be more regimented, you know, bureaucratic. Here are the specific rules you have to follow. Every day is planned out to being an entrepreneur in the music industry, which couldn't be less of any of those things where you have to make the new rules and the rules are always changing and you have to be adaptable and to see him kind of transition from one world to the other and to thrive in the military world and the music world, really, really inspiring. And I appreciated his insight and in all the things he talked about, including something he said at the end that I totally want to start doing more of was how he talked about the importance of talking to your fans one-on-one. -on -one. That's something that I want to do more. I do try to talk to people on um, who email me and, tweet at me on Twitter. I have conversations going with a bunch of my listeners, but I want to do more of that because I do think it is a great way to interact with people and to move your own career forward. And it's something that 
today's musicians have the luxury of doing that the musicians of the previous generation couldn't. Because the old music industry model was all about having millions of fans and getting a tiny amount of money from each fan. This music industry is all about having fewer fans, maybe thousands instead of millions, but having really strong, devoted relationships with each of those fans, so much so that they all want to give you a lot more money per person than they would have under the old model. You're, you're trying to cultivate high quality of fan relationships as opposed to just a high quantity of fan relationships that you did in the old era. And so in this new era, to build those strong fan relationships, to have your strong, devoted tribe of fans, you got to talk to your fans one-on-one. Get right down to where they are, to the individual fan level. Talk to them about what they like what they don't like, what they, what they want you to be doing more of, what you can do to serve them better, and learn more about your audience. It's something that you have the luxury of doing in this music industry because not only do you need fewer fans to succeed in today's industry than you did in previous industries, but today's communication tools, social media, Twitter, email, the Musicpreneur Hub, all allow you to have one-on-one contact with the folks in your industry that help you thrive. It's super cool. So, again, thank you to Tommy Darker for joining us, and I'm um, looking forward to seeing what happens with Musicpreneur Hub. I'm going to keep following it and keep seeing what it's up to, and I'm excited to watch it grow. Before we're done for this week, I want to talk a little bit of legal news, which means we get to play our favorite clip. Why did you judge me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused the revolution. You betrayed the law. Law. Thank you, Mr. Asante. I want to talk about the law of music licensing databases. No, no, no. Don't turn off your podcast. Don't do it. I assure you, music licensing databases is a lot more interesting than I just made it sound. It's actually really important. When I talk about music licensing databases, I'm talking about how most of you were going to get paid for the music you create. And so I want you to be informed. So don't run away. Don't switch off your podcast. Don't be bored. This law is actually quite interesting. Earlier this week, a bit of news. The performance rights organizations, ASCAP and BMI, these are PROs that you probably are signed up with one of them to get your performance royalties. They are competitors, and they have announced that they are working on creating a joint database of all of their musical works on their respective platforms. They want to make it easier for the users of public performance works, restaurants, venues, uh, TV commercials, things like that, to be able to more easily get public performance licenses for the music they want to do. This is cool. I'm excited for this. This is a big deal. This is valuable. And everybody can win the more that we can get organizations to talk to each other like this. Because the people who license the music, the restaurants, the performance venues, the bars, they need these centralized databases to make sure all the right people get paid. And you, the people who make the music, you should want this too because you want to get paid. And the more that we can have centralized databases where all the information is in one easy-to-find spot, the more that everybody wins. But right now, there is no easy way to do this. There is no central website you can go to and find out that has every song on it that lets people know who owns that song, who owns that recording, and in what percentages they own it, and who their publishing companies are. 
and all that stuff. If we had those things, life would be great, but we don't. What we have now is sort of a, we have a patchwork of databases. We have different ones that are popping up. Some PROs have them for performance royalties. And you have the Harry Fox agency, which has a database for some mechanical royalties, but it's a patchwork. And these databases, they don't talk to each other because they're represented by different entities. And it's a very incomplete database. There are some folks we talked about this last week about uh, mechanical licenses that, for example, aren't on the Harry Fox agency database at all, and Spotify is having trouble paying those people the mechanical royalties they're entitled to when those songs are played on Spotify. It's a big friggin' mess. It is a problem, and we need to solve it, and it's going to be a lot of work, and this is going to be quite a challenge for ASCAP and BMI because these two companies are competitors in the public performance licensing world they're gonna you know they've they've fought for many years they're gonna have some trouble working together i imagine it's gonna take them a long time to put this together and it's gonna have some fits and starts and in the past you know ascap and bmi aren't really the first people to try to tackle this question to some extent of how to create a centralized database of music in the past other organizations have tried to do this and they've all failed every single one there have been so many grand experiments to create a centralized music rights database that has all of the songs and who owns them and who needs to get paid. And no one's been able to do it because it's really hard to do logistically. There's a lot of rights holders and we're creating hundreds of new songs every day in this world. And so it's just a very, very, very tough problem to tackle. And, you know, there's been some, there's been some innovations in things like blockchain and things like that, that are, you know, heartening. They are positive developments, but we still have a long way to go. And, but the timing on this is interesting. Why is BMI and ASCAP announcing this now? Where did this come from? Why are they trying to do this now? And I'll tell you why. It is a reaction to an announcement that was made back on July 20th by the U.S. government. U.S. Congressman James Sensenbrenner has introduced a bill in the U.S. Congress called the Transparency in Music Licensing Act. And basically, this is the government's attempt to try to solve this problem. So the government's introducing a bill to try to create a government solution to this database problem, and that made ASCAP and BMI go, oh, crap, we don't want the government telling us what to do. We need to figure something out before they tell us how we're going to solve this problem. But what does the Transparency in Music Licensing Act do? That warrants noting and warrants asking about because if this becomes law, how will it change your life as a musician? we got to find this out. And so what this act would do is it would require the U.S. Copyright Office to create its own database of songs and sound recordings. And it's going to have all the ownership splits in there and who the publishing companies are, who the labels are, all that stuff. And the idea is we want to create a database that would allow people who license music one location that they can go to to find the owners of all the songs they need. And normally when Congress proposes a bill, when somebody in the Senate or the House writes a bill, it's usually thousands of pages or hundreds of pages, and it's hard to really know what is in the bill, and it's complicated. But I actually encourage you, the listener, to check out the text of this bill online, because... As far as federal bills go, it's actually a pretty short one. It's only a few pages. You could read the whole thing in one sitting if you wanted to. And even if you're not a lawyer, you could probably figure out the gist of what they're trying to do here. And that might, so it might be worth uh, 
looking at if you are a musician. You can check out the text of the bill online. It's called the Transparency and Music Licensing Act. So on the surface, this seems like a good thing, right? The government would create a central database for us. It would make it easier to find the rights holder. So for the bars and the venues that need the performance licenses, for the people who want to get the mechanical licenses to make cover recordings of songs, for all the people who want to license music for one thing or another, they get a central database to make it easy to find the rights holders. And on the other side of the coin, you, the content creator, it's easier for you to get paid because everything about your music is in one easy-to-find place. Your name's going to be there with uh, what you're supposed to get paid and what your splits are. It seems like a good thing on the surface, but a lot of musicians' groups are not happy with this bill. They're upset, and it's because of one provision in the bill in particular. And again, if you read the text of this bill, it's easy to find. It's not one of those things that's like buried beneath a bunch of text. This provision has made a lot of music groups upset, and here's what it is. Basically, to motivate copyright holders to actually put their information in this government database, to actually get them to go, oh, crap, I should get myself in this database, which could actually make this database worth a damn if it has a bunch of music in it, what the law says, and I'm going to oversimplify it a bit here, but basically what the law says is that if, a, if you, a copyright holder, don't put your information in the database, if you don't participate in this government database, and somebody uses your music without getting the proper licensing, and you sue them, your remedies are limited. You get fewer remedies, even though somebody has infringed upon your music, than you would otherwise get if you put your stuff in the database. Um, and basically what those limited remedies are is... If you're not in the database and somebody uses your music without getting the proper licensing, you can only get actual damages, the actual damages you suffered in a lawsuit, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Very hard to prove actual damages. Um, you don't get what are called statutory damages, which are damages that are specifically written in the law. They're really the damages that are worth the most if you're actually trying to protect your copyrights. And you don't get those if you, wouldn't, if you don't put your information in the database as this bill proposes. Now, some of you more savvy listeners out there might listen to that explanation and go, hmm, that actually, that sounds familiar to me. I feel like I've heard that before. Actual damages, statutory damages, not getting statutory damages. And if the reason why it sounds familiar to you is because it should, because that is basically the same punishment you would receive as an artist under current law if you don't register your copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office in the first place. So right now under the law, as we've talked about on this podcast, if you create a piece of music, if you write a song, your copyright exists from the moment you write that song. Bam, it is a copyright. You have federal protection for your copyright. But if you don't take the step of actually registering that copyright with the Copyright Office, your damages if somebody steals your work, are limited, you don't get those statutory damages that are the better kind of damages. And so basically, it takes that same scheme, and instead of just for copyright registration, now you can now you miss out on those same damages if somebody licenses your music without your permission, and you don't have your stuff in the this database, this licensing database that the government would be creating under the Transparency in Music Licensing Act. So... Um, you can see why, so, you know, you can see why artists might be upset by this bill. A lot of artists are saying, Hey, why should I get fewer rights under the law? My rights are my rights. Why should I get fewer rights just because 
I don't know how to, or I'm not willing to participate in a government database. Why should I have to register with the government just to get, just to protect my property? And that's sort of what they're, what they're arguing there. And, you know, a lot of artists are upset. Admittedly, this kind of statutory scheme, it screws a little bit over the unsophisticated artist. If you're just somebody out there who writes songs, maybe you don't have, you can't afford a lawyer and you don't know how to do all this government registration stuff, you just want to get your work protected, you're going to be most likely the party that gets screwed by a law like this. Because the more sophisticated artists, the ones that have the, the you know, can afford to hire lawyers and has a big-time, well-run operation, they're going to have no problem making these database registrations that they have to under the Transparency and Music Licensing Act. It's the small-time artists that are going to have problems with this. And so that's something we have to think about. And what I would hope, though, is that if a law like this gets passed, that there would be some private sector solutions like websites that would help you with that registration really easily and take care of the government stuff for you and do it at a low cost. And honestly, I think that's probably what would happen because it would be filling a need. And whenever there's a need in business, somebody fills it because, you know, invisible hand, profit, motivation, all that good stuff. So this is where we are. We got some people saying that this, you know, the government licensing database could be a good thing. Other people are saying that it could take away rights from artists. And there are some who are saying, yes, it's true. We need a central licensing database, but it shouldn't be something that the government does. Instead, this is something that should be handled by the private sector, that we should get a centralized global, global rights hub, use things like blockchain to manage these payments to musicians and keep the government out of it. And so that's the debate that's currently raging right now. We all agree that a centralized database could be good, but who should be the one to provide this solution? Is it a government solution? Is it a private sector solution? And look, whenever we talk about legal subjects and laws being proposed in Congress, you know I'm always ready to give you my feeling on what I think is the right thing. And I'll tell you, this is what you should fight for. This is what you should advocate because I'm trying to advocate for your best interests. But in this case, I'm not sure what the answer is. Honestly, I'm not trying to be cute here. I don't know if in this case, the government solution is the best or the private sector solution is the best. And if you're one of these people who are really strongly in one camp or the other, let me know, reach out to me, break the business at gmail.com. And let me know if I'm missing something, because honestly, I think both sides have a strong argument here. I think there are strengths to both sides. I think there are weaknesses to both sides. And I think there are question marks that both sides need to figure out. And honestly, what we have to do as members of this music community is we have to monitor this. We have to learn more. We have to see where this law is going and help eventually make an informed decision. But here are some things for you to think, think about, because there are good, strong arguments in both camps, and we can kind of set, summarize both of them. So the people who are in favor of the government creating this database, who are in favor of the Transparency in Music Licensing Act, what they're going to tell you is that the government solution is the best because we can centralize it with the force of law, which could ultimately encourage more people to use the database and make it more effective. We'd have government resources behind it, so we wouldn't have to worry about there not being enough money to make this database happen. And furthermore, 
this uh, threat of losing rights under the law, this idea that you don't get all the damages you're entitled to unless you participate in the database. While some might say that sucks for artists, it would motivate artists to take part in the database. You know, the, for the most part, the private sector can't actually motivate people to participate in the database. They can't force people to participate, but the government has more power to do that. And so we might actually get a better more comprehensive, more complete database if we use a government solution here. And now, to be fair, the private sector has tried for years to create these kind of databases. It's not like this ASCAP BMI thing is the first attempt at trying to centralize uh, music licensing rights. We've been trying for years to create this kind of database in the private sector, and it's always failed. Nobody's been able to figure out how to thread this needle, and so maybe we need a government solution. So that's one side of the argument, the pro-government solution, the pro-transparency act solution from uh, Representative Sensenbrenner. But the private sector gang has a good argument too. The private sector, one, we should keep the government out of this. You know, uh, some people just don't favor the government, want the government, some people want the government to be as involved with their lives as little bit as possible particularly in the matters of the creativity business. You know, we don't think of the government as the most creative uh, entity in the world. And so maybe better to allow the private sector to figure this out. Let the innovation of the private sector figure this out. Maybe they will eventually. Uh, The pro-private sector people also say that this idea of taking away some rights of the creators if they don't register in the database is, is wrong is unethical. And those, as we said before, a lot of musicians groups are saying, why should my property rights, you know, my right to life, liberty, property, why should my rights to my intellectual property be somehow less just because I'm not willing to put myself in a government database? Or maybe I don't know how to put myself in the government database because I don't have, I can't afford a lawyer who can help me figure this database out. Those are all good points. And I'll add this point to the pro-private sector argument from somebody who's who's an intellectual property lawyer myself and has to work with the Copyright Office's online resources to do my job. Historically, the Copyright Office has sucked at building databases. Right now, the Copyright Office has a database of all the registered works on the Copyright Office. It's impossible to navigate. You can't often find the works you're looking for. It's not like it's easy to search. And it's an ugly website. And they've tried to create other databases. They created a a database of fair use decisions on the Copyright website. That database is a little messy. And so we can't just assume that the government is just going to make a fantastic website that's going to be easy to navigate because in the past, the Copyright Office has had a lot of trouble with that. And so we can certainly ask whether we think that the government is the best fit to create what is admittedly going to be a very complicated database that is going to be updated frequently, that's going to have hundreds of new songs added to it every day. That might not be the best place to put it is with the government. Maybe it has to be private sector. Um, Both sides have strong arguments, and we're going to have to follow this over the coming weeks and months to see what the best solution is. All right, folks, our thanks to Tommy Darker for joining us this week, and my thanks to you, as always, for joining us. We'll see you next time on the Break the Business podcast. (laughs) 